Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jessica Jones podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. It was open, Matt. Jessica Jones, episode 101, a.k.a. Ladies' Night, is brought to you by Elmer's Glue. It won't work on doors. <laughs> uh, well done, Pete. Welcome, everyone. We are finally here. Finally at Jessica Jones. Here it is. Friday, November 20th, 2015. The show has finally arrived. This pilot episode that we were so lucky to see at New York Comic Con last month. Now available for everyone. Now ready for our full analysis. And I don't know about you, Pete. Are you ready to jump on in? Born ready. It's time for some surveillance. What did we see in the episode? Pete, take it away. After a credit sequence, uh, just have to give props again to Matt that uh, we essentially pick the music for and then the show went with. Go back and look at the timestamps on, uh, on our podcast here uh, when we put it together. There's no way that ours didn't influence this. Um, <laughs> that might be a bit much, but anyway. <laughs> We begin, Matt, in New York, the city that never sleeps, but it sure does sleep around. But hey, cheaters are good for business here for Jessica Jones, and she takes pictures of rather steamy alleyway affairs. Pete, we see here in New York City looking, if it's possible, almost more gritty and stark, no pun intended, than it did in Daredevil. It just seems like an even worse place um, th than, than the events we saw in that show. And I just like that immediately there's a certain tone set here for the particular, the particular uh, slice of life that Jessica Jones is inhabiting. Yes, and she, through the narration, sporadic throughout the episode, but always at the right times, tells us that she excels at looking for the worst in people. She then breaks this news to uh, her client, whose wife is sleeping with his brother. They get into an argument, Jessica Jones and the client, and she throws him through her alias investigation office window pete i love the inclusion of the line there that uh, she is blamed for ruining their already crappy lives yeah and then there's the matter of his bill but uh no sooner are we out on the street we get a couple uh shots around hell's kitchen there including the uh trish talk on wnex a sign we see on a bus later we see one at a bus stop all comes full circle in the episode. But then we're at the Hogarth, Chow, and Benowitz offices. So fantastic to see Carrie Ann Moss here as Jerry Hogarth. And Pete, we, we have said on podcasts or other shows, we've complained all the time about, you know, how exposition can drag down the story as they're explaining stuff to we, the audience. But here we have speedy exposition. It works, I think, in part because it's just, Boom, 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 keep it moving. It's made clear that uh, Jessica Jones works freelance and is also defined as a bit of a loose cannon. Yeah, and it's it's snappy. Uh, the move to cast uh, a male character in Hogarth as a woman here, completely behind it. And you can't argue with the results, the, the delivery here. You know, talking about uh, Jones' erratic, volatile, eight jobs here she's delivered results um but hogarth here is is looking for jones to use her methods she refers to here and uh she needs this summon served to uh a gentleman's club owner named greg spheris <laughs> indeed pete those references there to unique methods uh part of how the story is slowly uh, slowly rolling out the uh, the reveal as to uh, what it is that makes Jessica Jones a little different. Uh, also just wanted to mention, especially for newer listeners, maybe haven't heard some of the preview episodes on fantasticgeek.com or iTunes, uh, that is, of course, the Hogarth character in the comics is male, and in the show she's female. And, uh, and uh, with that, Pete, we're off to, uh, at least presumably, to track down Mr. Spheris. 
yeah, a poor dancer fell off a pole in his establishment and he's hard to serve, what with his bodyguards and such. So uh, from there, it's to the bathroom, Matt, where uh, Jessica Jones has her laptop and uh, she's on the phone with Spheris' office pretending to be somebody she's not. And she gets uh, another member of the uh, Vanderbilt uh, color guard here. Pete, it's all about the color guard. It's 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 all about the color guard. But it is, and Magda is so excited to uh, to hear from Karen on the other end of the line here that Jessica is uh, pretending to be. All goes down, but then, of course, much like Jessica's life, nothing's quite right. There's no toilet paper left. I really like how this is uh, a very human and unglamorous presentation of the character here. You know, it, when's the last time you saw a lady character on the toilet? It's just in and of itself. It's I think it's tugging slightly here at kind of gender expectations and whatnot. You know, Pete, as the book says, everybody poops. And there's that plus the fact that she's kind of pretending to be the secretary with the high ditzy voice. Um, but then outsmarts that type of woman um, because, you know, Jessica Jones is, is certainly cut from a different kind of cloth. Um, it's just this, this human yet this, yet this very powerful portrayal of the character. But we're starting to get at her in particular. She goes to bed here. No sooner is she back up. She's filling her thermos full of booze. And then she's, uh, talking about how in her line of work, you got to know when to walk away, but some cases won't let you go. And no sooner is she exhibiting her abilities for the first time, she leaps inhumanly, Matt, into the fire escape. And suddenly she's looking through the uh, sight of her camera. Uh, you know, there's the woman who spends two minutes on the treadmill and 20 minutes with a quarter pounder. There's shoe sniffer guy. And then there's a rather handsome African-American man along with a woman who step out of a bar. And uh, this gets her really pensive. We follow this around for a little bit. She follows them up to a room. And suddenly that same man is looking rather pensively out a window before quick flash of purple you know you want to do it. Pete, before that that purple reveal, I think it's clear at this point that Jessica is not out on some PI job. You know, in the previous scene, we saw her trying to sleep. The camera's at 90 degrees. It's, it's, it's a tense visual presentation. That scene shows she has demons here. Again, she's not out on some sort of case. She's not getting her her hands dirty for a client. She's just spying on people. She's spying on strangers and a voyeur. Indeed. Uh, and what catches her most is seeing this mysterious man bring a girl home. And it's it, to me, it kind of suggested that she's trying to, to almost get like a contact high off the intimacy that he is having. And she's trying to feel, you know, whether it's whether it's physically intimate, emotionally intimate, whatever it might be, she's kind of watching from afar to 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 keep her to keep her heart, you know, her her emotional heart warm a bit, but but also across the street and and still quite alone. The flashback vision, however, triggers her into what seems to be some kind of rehearsed response, Main Street, Birch Street, Higgins Drive, Cobalt Lane. And it's from there that, uh, you know, we see a woman with that African-American uh, man now in her underwear and uh, things kind of change as far as her looking in on that. Um, wakes up in the morning and uh, throws a boot at the ceiling with an arguing couple above and we see the obvious damage that somebody with whatever powers that Jessica Jones has can do. And then the phone has not been charged in. So no wonder nobody's called. We hear a clatter come from the kitchen and then snoring only to find somebody sleeping against the fridge. And she knows this person it's Ika Darville's Malcolm. Pete, these 
two scenes taking place in the one apartment. It's all about the small details. On her night table are empty bottles of both Jim Beam and Cuddy Stark. Uh, that that uh, mark on the ceiling from the boot, it's not just the new one. You can see how it's been it's been done before and puttied over and done before and puttied over. Um, here with Malcolm, you know, he's sleeping. He is almost certainly high. There, there are most certainly needle marks in his arm. Um, the fact that she quickly recognizes him, it's effortless exposition to make it clear, hey, she knows his name and hey, he is somehow familiar to her and it's acceptable that he's wandered here thinking that it's his apartment then pete continuing this effortless exposition knock knock who's there more of the story about to unfold completely naturally completely organically yeah and the the crunchy peanut butter here uh that it's not crunchy he knows he's in the wrong place but no sooner is he ready to leave uh points out that uh jessica jones uses sarcasm to distance herself from people we have a couple at the door here looking for uh jessica jones the private investigator it's barbara and bob schlotman of omaha their missing daughter hope here who still calls once a week but mom's worried maybe that she's joined a cult again just by nature of the fact that this is a private investigator character who gets new cases from time to time you don't know that the story is saying, okay, well, we need to explain a whole bunch of things because this is, of course, when the when the concerned mother would say to the private eye, Hope has quit the, the track team. And Pete, as Bob fiddles with fixing her door, there's, there's a purpose for that bit of comedy there in an otherwise um, very serious situation. And almost like, come on, Bob, sit down. You're, you've come all this way to find your daughter. Right. I would argue, Pete, that he is at the door for that little bit of humor it is there to hide the fact that there's this quick, odd little reference that someone at the police department referred the Schlotmans to Jessica. And Jessica mm-hmm. kind of keeps on rolling as though that's normal. But again, all this, let's, you know, try and get the door up. Do you, did you strip the screws? Do you have epoxy? Do you have the, it's, it's story coverage for that one little nugget to stay in our brain but not be too present. And as she begins digging here, she finds out that Bob's a, general uh contractor uh barbara is an accountant they also have a son owen and it's track track more track but she finds a friend which is part of the breadcrumb trail that she's doing here tracks the friend down breaks the door handle as she's trying to enter and uh yeah it was open Pete, you know, I'm sure longtime listeners know we podcast all the Marvel shows, all the Marvel movies. There is a time and a place for special effects, big, you know, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of take with computer generated, you know, this, that and the other. Here, though, there's just this conscious decision. We're just going to slowly roll out. Hey, she can leap, you know, partially leap a tall building somewhat moderately while she's drunk um here she can pop open a lock on what looks to be a fairly sturdy door she can just pop it open with a twist of her wrist it's it's this kind of just quiet confident way to say yeah she she has powers but we're not going to call it we're not going to call it powers we're just going to downplay it in this in this larger marvel world where there's people like this and uh we're not quite sure what to call them or what to do with them and it's just kind of this this casualness to it all Jones has found the ex-roommate here of Hope. And uh, unfortunately, that roommate had to go to Craigslist and pick up another roommate, an Asian gentleman who's now filming an experimental time-lapse film with a GoPro on his forehead. Um, But, you know, again, effortlessly, those details dribbled out here. Hope said to sell all of her stuff for rent. She only made 98 bucks back. And uh, that she's not missing. She's holed up with that guy. Uh, Don't mention it to the parents. But he's amazing. And, you know, we're rapidly putting this together as an audience. This was her best friend, the roommate. And now she's been dumped to the curb in favor of Mr. Amazing, whoever that is. And it's the it's the former best friend's take that, you know, essentially, hey, here in the big city, like, 
That happens sometimes. People in their 20s, you know, all of a sudden switch directions in their life or make make new friends or quickly fall in love. And it belies what is to come and, and the seduction that is to come by just <laughs> admitting this worldly fact. Hey, sometimes people just suddenly quick it you know, uh, take a quick left turn with their with their life. And hey, that kind of stinks, but no biggie on with the rest of my life. Again, it's underplaying something really important and hiding it kind of in in plain sight. Outside a club, a gentleman gets into a car and speeds away. We can only assume that this is one Greg Spheris. As Jessica Jones watches this, she catches up to him. Uh, Pretty far down the road, it seems. How exactly? We're not quite sure. But at a light, she wants to know if he knows where the Chrysler building is. He wants to know if she knows how to Google. And then it gets weird, Matt, because she picks up the back end of his car. Again, effortless presentation here that she can effortlessly pick up the car with the you know by its bumper um he's confused he's calling her one of them he's calling her not normal and i love her response pete it's people like you who give people like you a bad name that and the hair plugs which he checks to make sure they're in the right place but she's trying to get him to take the summons here uh, she points out, you know, you're going to call me one of them. Does it look like I'm hiding that you want to feel safe? And you know what? If you don't take it, I'm going to melt your insides with my laser eyes that won't leave a trace. Fantastic line. Of course, it's preposterous to us, but put yourself in the shoes of somebody who lives in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is it that impossible, Pete? It's actually kind of mundane. So he buys it. She, of course, is just kind of you know rolling her eyes if not literally then in in uh just general attitude at you know what a what a complete jerk he is with that pete summons delivered you know snap a picture to prove it and you know and she moves on quickly or at least the story does sleeping she feels uh something brush across her uh the purple once again there and creeps out back to her Birch Street, Higgins Drive, Cobalt Lane, calm down routine. And then the phone rings. It's Hogarth following up that she's got the message. But Spheris has claimed that you lifted his car high overhead and threatened with the laser eyes. She wants to know if this is indeed the case. And uh, she affirms, I threatened him with my laser eyes. And then Matt... Uh, a character we don't know a name for just yet, or at least you don't, that her lady secretary appears here, who's also working late. Uh, business concluded, pay payroll going to be notified, and then we find out this is a little bit more than a work uh, relationship. Indeed, we do, Pete. And this is a series of scenes that are so enlightening as to our as to our characters here. Um, whether we go all the way back to uh, Jessica getting those flashes of purple that wake her up, how does the shot start? Well, there's that empty glass. I mean, you know, is is she a social drinker? Is she drinking in excess? Is she an alcoholic? I mean, you know, check any of the boxes above. Um, but we get a little kind of implied story nugget there. And then she's able to go from, you know, self-deprecating to I don't give a hoot to just absolutely damaged and wounded. Um, and then just out again with putting up that self-deprecating shield. Um, and then also we get we learn a little about Hogarth and uh, how she not only runs her life, which is which is perfectly fine, Pete. It's the 21st century, but also how she runs her office, which the people in HR might not be crazy about. From there, outside in the street again, we hear some Ray Charles that uh, a woman being good to me, certainly the subject of that song. And then uh, there's a gentleman outside confronting uh, Jessica Jones that uh, she could drink that out of a glass. But she tells him that uh, her whiskey's not good enough for a glass. And she also buys in bulk. But the fact that she's local, that she's hot, that she's alone, um, this tends to attract. And uh, yeah, it's ladies night. So come on in. 
Pete, there's two roads you can kind of take in this scene. And and the show is suggesting which road to take. You can say, oh, she's super powered and iron stomach, metaphorical. And of course she buys in bulk because for her to get a little drunk, it's got to be a gallon, that kind of thing. Or it's just speaking as to her self-awareness of her increasingly kind of pathetic existence. Now we'll learn it's a step up from where she was six months and a year ago. Uh, but just this notion of what she has isn't good enough for the, you know, for a glass, uh, that she's buying alcohol in bulk, even as she's walking around the bar, director SJ Clarkson, she chooses these brilliant shots where we are seeing Jessica from inside the warm, happy, cozy bar, Jessica outside in the cold, the, the, the older windows almost modeling our view of her. And, and it's with this mottled view that Jessica views herself and now, as you said, Pete, there's this offer. Hey, come inside, grab a bar stool, have a drink. We learn a lot in this conversation. We learn that this uh, character, this uh, African-American man we've seen before, he is the boss, or at least Roy calls him boss. And then it's last call, Matt. Is it still ladies' night? Let's make it a double. And he points out this is a lot of booze for such a small woman. But she points out that she doesn't get asked on many second dates. And Pete, throughout this whole scene, as as apt and wonderful and increasingly captivating as Kristen Ritter is, this is a scene where Mike Coulter, playing Luke Cage, he is selling the scene. He is the sizzle to the stake in the scene. And then here we are back again with uh, director S.J. Clarkson, where she does these shots that normally would be a close-up, but instead they make it a two-shot, but it's Jessica's face and then just the bulk of Luke's body. Cut to Luke talking to her, um, you know, you'll see, or cut to his response, you'll see him and then just the side of her head filling the scene. It makes what would be normally close-up, close-up, one-shot, one-shot, it makes them both in on the scene in a way that is very, very intimately framed you know, obviously portending the, the intimacy that the characters have ahead of them. And it's intimate in the discussion as well. She admits that she's a private investigator and that booze costs money usually. Um, but it comes around to her ability to detect things. She says that there was a man that four years ago ate buffalo wings here. His name was whatever. And uh, Luke admits uh, his name was Melvin. Was that another Melvin we know from Hell's Kitchen? Well, we can make possibly that connection. But, you know, she admits here, I take pictures of people boning. Um, but she's never seen a dive bar this clean. There's history. There's memories. It's something personal but private. And that she's noticed he likes women temporarily. Um, and, uh Yeah. Well, and I mean, she also adds that she just says what she wants. And what does she want? With that, Pete, we cut to their sex scene, which, I mean, again, I have to return to the director here, S.J. Clarkson. This scene is passionate and loveless at the same time. There are these shots that quickly show intimacy, yet the vulnerability of being naked with someone for the first time. And it's just, it's not a, you know, it's not a sexy scene. It's not a steamy scene. It's it's two people scratching an itch um, quickly turns to a bit of exposition in a moment. But there's just something that is intentionally uh, out of tune in this scene because these are two people not making love. These are two people doing a thing that they thought was a good idea a little while ago. And now you're kind of still doing it because it's not awful, which in and of itself is a sad statement for, you know, what's supposed to be a nice time. I think some viewers are going to know here that the man she's sleeping with is Luke Cage and that he is powered as well. But again, the, the effortless exposition, it's okay. I won't break. She tells him and he says, you will. And it's, it's an intense scene, not just with what's happening here, the, the way in which it's shot and handled. And when she winds up in the bathroom here, tinged with regret, only to find the picture of a woman in the medicine cabinet behind some pills, you know, she says sorry and she she leaves. Then we have the uh, the 
vomiting in the uh, the alleyway there, and uh, she winds up back in bed, and it's the couple upstairs again. And this whole, you know, out of bed, walk home, into bed, back at her place. I mean, there's such an awkwardness to it. The the self loathing on her face as she goes into his bathroom is 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 just so present on her face. Um, meanwhile, you know, she still is happy to look through his medicine cabinet to check out that large prescription bottle there. You know, I mean, it's it's an intimate place that she is looking into, and then she's disappointed at what at what she finds. And Pete, I read that vomiting as not not you know a, a physical sickness. I just read it as it's it's her own disgust in herself. Uh, you know, kind of forming as 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 this vomit coming out. Yeah, and there's the cathartic act of it too. You know, the 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 cleansing nature of that act is a symbol to get to the next scene with the Schlotmans uh, calling here. And uh, oh yeah, I was I had a long night checking up on your daughter here. There's been these unusual charges, and then we we get the the montage over the discussion of you know, the lingerie store and the fancy tie store. Um, but they raised their daughter to, to be frugal. You know, the, the card that she's charging, well, that was just for emergencies. And we drop in again, the, the Trish talk sign, you know, the, the number one talk radio show in the market, you know, we'll, we'll save that for later. But uh, Jones arrives outside a restaurant which we eventually learn is called Niku, but it was, as she finds out, Il Russo. And she says, no, no way. Goes in and asks the maitre d', have you seen a girl? And he says immediately, I don't want any more trouble. And uh, yeah, there was a girl there last Tuesday. Her companion wanted a particular table. And for some reason, the maitre d' told a couple who was already seated there to leave. The sommelier, well, he comped this man a $500 bottle of wine. And then uh, he ordered Il Russo's famous dish that they went and got for him. Um, and as she's learning this, she's walking back to that table and we flash back. She sees herself there. We never see the man talking to her. But uh, he tells her here on their uh, month anniversary, you'll love it. And she says she'll love it. Matt, she ain't loving it now. She's not, Pete. And I'll disagree ever so slightly with one thing that you said. I think that her walking back to view that table was perhaps in her in her mind and in her memory. Not that it not that it takes away um the, the 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 potency of the point which is she's realizing her own experience in this place uh in the past uh, i mean bottom line is this is this reveal here where where she's realized that she is on a very familiar path it's not just kind of oh a girl who fell in love with the with the wrong guy or the guy that mom and dad wouldn't approve of or whatever it's now this path that she was on and and with this um with this mechanical way and he in which he tells her to smile and she says smile and i will like it and all of this you know she runs out and the camera work is extremely fragmented almost almost to a point of distraction but they just start to pull it back as she pulls herself back repeating those street names again and the visuals become more smooth as she smooths herself uh out emotionally there's one piece of dialogue i think it's pertinent to bring up the maitre d asks as she's preparing to run away he's not coming back is he and that's really the question at this point we know him to be involved with hope we just haven't seen it yet and this is becoming rapidly too familiar too personal on this case but uh the schlotmans are at their hotel and Jessica Jones stops by. She wants to know which cop referred her, but it wasn't a cop. It was someone at the station who overheard this. He had an accent English. And if you don't know, it's uh, David Tennant at this point. You better figure that out. But she says, you guys need to pack. She begins to pack. She's on the phone trying to buy 
a ticket using Hope's credit card to Hong Kong as far away as she can get. But now the card has been declined. It's over the limit or whatnot. They won't hold that ticket either. And uh, she calls Hogarth needing to get paid. Won't pay her. It's got to go through payroll. She needs a loan. Well, that's not how I conduct my business. And after that conversation, as it's ending, of course, uh, we get Hogarth's what we can only assume is her significant other, another uh, woman closer to her age who picks her up so they're not late for a reservation. Indeed, Pete, that character, and, and the first name escapes me, but the character is credited as uh, like a Hogarth hyphenate, you know, like Smith Hogarth, you know, the implication being being marriage there. Um, but the effect of these two scenes uh, for, for Jessica is just, it, 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 it's wonderful in a story sense, but you feel a little disappointed in her. Now, spoiler alert, we're at the lowest point for the character, and now she's going to start to, you know, claw her way up again, as we do in any fictional narrative. But here she is, as you said, Pete, she's trying to use the runaway girl's credit card to, to I mean, it's theft. This is theft at this point. When that doesn't work, well, let me call somebody with money. And it's, well, no, I'm not your friend. If you need money, go see a friend. We have a legit business relationship which might approach Gray, but not really because if you hire somebody to to take some pictures, pictures can be taken. If you hire somebody to, to deliver summonses, that's what people do. I mean, that's all legit and above board. Um, and then Pete, she runs into Malcolm who offers her a, a stolen TV, but that's no good because this is the company that she keeps. You know, there's the clients, there's the people who hire her um, in, in Hogarth. I mean, Hogarth is kind of a client and also employing Jessica. And then there's like this guy who's clearly a drug dealer. She has no one apparently, which Pete is a great time to have us show that she knows someone else. Yes, Matt, Trish is having a discussion here with Zach and an unnamed uh, underling. She wants Madeline Albright. He wants Channing Tatum. Jessica Jones wants in. They have to leave. And again, just, you know, I, I don't mean to overuse the word effortless. There's just that quick little boom, boom. I just landed on the balcony. It's not, you know, hey, let's do a special effects shot. Let's do wire work. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not this show. She's not, you know, particularly impressed with her powers, nor is Trish. So all of a sudden, there she is. Why didn't she use the door, Pete? Because she wasn't sure if Trish would answer. Right. Immediately informing the audience as to the nature of their friendship. And not you know, really keeping tabs, right? You became a private eye, but she needs money there. You need money? I haven't heard from you for six months that she's been shut out. But Jones comes with the admission he's back. And uh, Trish, you know, recounts us again. It's been a year. Jess, you saw him die. You saw the death certificate. This is PTSD. Are you having nightmares? Are you having flashbacks? But, uh, you know, the, the therapist that she went to, it was $200 for Birch Street, Cobalt Lane. There's this girl from Omaha, and we sent her around the questions that we have as viewers. Why her? Is she gifted? And and we kind of start to have the edges of this this story in the past. And and as was noted by uh, by a bunch of people online, there's there's approval from the audience that we are not starting with, you know, one day there she was walking along, then a meteorite that hit a toxic truck splashed on her and <laughs> gave her these powers and thus she became, you know, like it's that they're just starting kind of mid in the middle of her story and we need to catch up and kind of kind of, you know, kind of know what's what with her. Um, it's. It's clear. Look, it's clear to anybody who's watching that clearly this is not um, a PTSD bad guy who has hope. You know, that this is a real threat. Yeah. Um, but I like that they, they, you know, they, the story makers, still play along with this idea of this is all in your head. This is all out of the PTSD that we have seen and that we are treating seriously. And you have connected this in the wrong way. Um, that's a completely reasonable position uh, for Trish to take. And how 
just like what happened to Jessica, these things, that one month anniversary night, the lingerie, the hotel, you know what he can do. And um, that, that it can't come down to leaving this girl with him. These clients, he sent her these clients. So this is all part of some larger game. He's toying with her. And, um, you know, Trish points out that, you know, you, you're far better equipped to deal with this animal. And th thus the function of the scene becomes clear in addition to kind of giving some backstory in addition to bringing Trish into focus in the story. This is the this is the call to arms for the hero. Mm -hmm. This is the wake up call to say, be that hero. I mean, Jessica has the line, I was never the hero that you wanted me to be. Right. Well, we're at the beginning of the season. We're at the beginning of the story. Time to somehow get your head out of the bottle and figure out how to be a hero, if not, you know, the hero like you see about on the news with the Avengers and, you know, this, this, this daredevil of Hell's Kitchen. Do, do more with what you have than just take pictures, as Jessica said, of people boning and, you know, occasionally picking up a car so you can deliver a summons. Be more than that is Trish's message. And to Jessica, and I dare say it's the message of the show to a lot of people, including the female audience. Be, be the most that you can be. And she's in the car, she gets the money from Trish, but she has these pangs of conscience over the, uh, the voices of the Schlotmans, and she knows exactly where she needs to go. She tells the um, taxi driver to take her uptown to 59th and 5th. There's a hotel. Of course, she's recognized by the bellman, welcomes her back. You're going to stay with us again. And there's this great, creepy hallway lengthening shot. You've seen it before, but it's particularly effective here. And she pops the fire alarm. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a trick that I know Hitchcock uh, popularized. I don't know if uh, he was the first one to do it. He pulled uh, a lot of fire alarms at Hitchcock. <laughs> he sure did, Pete. And, and, and I think once he also said, let's dolly out and zoom in. It makes the screen look look funny. Um, but it's also, I mean, again, there's, this is, this is an episode written by, you know, creator, executive producer, showrunner, Melissa Rosenberg, that there is such narrative efficiency. You know, how do you see who's in there? Well, anybody with a brain or at least a, a, a an independent brain, you hear the fire alarm, you get the hell out of the building. And the fact that every room empties out except for the one at the end of the hall. You know, we don't need a, a, a scene in the middle to say, oh, room 521, the suite, it is occupied. It's just skip over that. Who cares? She knows. Pull the alarm. Nobody comes out of there with that. The, the threat immediately uh, is heightened. I mean, my goodness, as, as, as creatures, we are supposed to be afraid of fire. And there's this alarm saying, get out, there is fire. But nothing happens. As she goes down the hallway, the fire alarm light flashing on her. We get that quick glint of purple. You miss me, he says real quick, which uh, I believe was the line that got to you, right, Matt? It was not that line. We are oh, no. pro we are approaching a line that has that that has stuck with me for a month, and I'm not saying that for effect. It truly has, but we're not there yet. Okay, so you know the last thing to figure out is. Is he there? And once uh, Jones winds up in the bedroom, sees the woman there, who we find out is Hope, wants to know, is Kilgrave here? But he left five hours and 21 minutes ago. Um, the, uh, the digital clock says it, so it must be true, and that they have to get her out. And repeatedly, Hope says she can't, she can't. They call the father, tell her, that we're coming and that we're going to bring uh, hope there, uh, but hope wet the bed. And then it gets violent as far as her resistance to go. But thankfully Jones is able to carry her away. Pete, it's that line where hope respond, you know, Jessica says, you know, Oh, he she realizes, Oh, he told you not to move. And hope responds that she wet the bed. That's the line that has stuck with me because it speaks to it speaks to the power of this guy in a way that 
that doesn't require special effects and it, it just says i mean there's this fundamental dignity not to overly spell it out here but there's this fundamental fundamental dignity to you, you know using the bathroom in the bathroom and that sort of thing and I mean, th this girl has been reduced to an infant in, in, in the course of that act, in the course of messing yourself like that. And it, it just speaks to the core of this guy being, you know, being somebody who has treated her with so little dignity that that, that she's soiled herself. Then the seat from that, the, the, the scene rather, from that lowest point, then we get the fighting and the, the clawing and the pulling and the smashing of things because she simply does not want to leave her own filth and and her own her own just you know happiness and following the orders to stare at the clock for the last five hours and 21 minutes it this is the driver of the core of of being told that Kilgrave is the villain once jones gets hope back to her apartment here and uh, the explanation that his control, whatever it is, it wears off, but it takes time and distance that uh, Hope was made to do these things, that she didn't want to do them, but she did want to do them. And uh, this is where Jones really shows her softer side. She says, you know, what was your street? that you grew up on as a kid. Oh, okay. It was Harrison street. What was the next block over Florence? So now she's the therapist and something very smart in, in Rosenberg's writing here, you know, a victim helping a victim. And there's that strength in this. And I think we're going to see a real sisterly bond between these two characters, despite what's about to happen right here. But there's that it's not your fault. None of this was your fault. Um, yet there's that that dirty aspect, really, that and there's no other way to put it that hope feels you don't know. Um, but Jones makes her repeat that this was not her fault and her parents show up and, and she repeats that it, it's not my fault, but uh, that she's got to be kept away from this man who took her. Don't stop till you get to Omaha. Pete, not only is Rosenberg's writing here uh, so so sharp, showing as you said that uh, that it's the victim helping the victim, but it also I think serves to humanize the character of Jessica Jones to we the audience. I think there are people who probably just because she's kind of you know tough and quirky and and independent, people some people anyway have latched on from from the word go. But I think, too, probably at some point somebody said, you need to have a scene to show that she's not a witch the entire time. For the people in the audience who were like, I don't like her, she's off-putting, that, that, that shield needs to come down. That guard needs to be lowered enough to say, there is a person in there who is not who we have seen so far. There's somebody else who's kinder and nicer and who hasn't been shaped by these awful events in her past. And when they're able to hug and Hope is able to tell her, you saved my life, uh, Jones tells her to go. I'm right behind you. And the thing for me, the symbol of the episode is the window of uh, Jones' apartment slash office that's now been replaced by the side or bottom of a box that says fragile on it. And it's overt, but at the same time, it's not. And we see that one last time. And then the elevator starts to close and Hope gives this look to Jones. And then she reaches for the gun in her pocketbook. The door closes. There are shots. And by the time Jessica is able to get downstairs, the dad's body falls out. Hope is hopelessly clicking the gun and the mom is dead as well. And she says to jones smile and she says it with this look on her face where she's just kind of like a, like a mute doll a mute little doll yeah. just trying to look her best and i love pete that that this smile then fades and the camera tilts classic way to to, to communicate to the audience that that we are to feel as a character does off kilter um and with that, the real hope kind of comes back into into her mind, and she sees that her parents are dead. I think that it's it's played so perfectly that it's not like 
what whoa there's a gun could this could this be me like what happened we are meant to have the real hope come back or or the real uh, morals of hope shall you say come back and she immediately recognizes what she has done and there is that responsibility i didn't want to but i wanted to it's that dichotomy again and and, and not kind of the i am brainwashed as much as it is I did this thing that I was conscious of and I agreed, which is which is many times worse. And of course, she's screaming for her mother, but she screams, help me. And Jessica leaves and she's about to get into a taxi. And we get that final narration here that this is the decision. This is the, the second and the definitive call as the episode closes here that she could keep denying this or she could do something about it. And as the hero back in, she goes. What suspects draw our focus in this episode, Pete, let's start with Jerry Hogarth. Well, Jaron Hogarth here, uh, she seems like somebody that that's despite her upstanding business, persona obviously she's conducting at least one affair and uh you know despite the fact that she won't pay jones who really needs the money off the books you know this involvement with the the next one up on our list of suspects um greg spheris there, there's something quite not quite right here pete it it makes sense for every story purpose to have made this character female. First of all, if it was just somewhat shadowy businessman of male Caucasian uh, persuasion, that would feel just like the baddie that the, the, you know, the shadowy industrialist baddie that we had in the last Marvel Netflix show. So yeah, you get where that benefit. Would they find a bald woman. <laughs> this is true, Pete. Um, but then you just have this added twist of, well, this is a show that's made by women, that's profoundly about women, so why not just you know swap this character over, um, change little about her, you know, the character is still interested in women, so on and so forth, and just kind of roll with it. And it's interesting that we should start with her on the on the suspects list, just because th there's enough play in this for. You know, maybe they don't turn her bad this season. Maybe she's never bad. Maybe she's bad in another show. Um, these are all options, but she doesn't need to be clearly the baddie. So you kind of let her operate in this shadowy existence that I suspect she's certainly not alone in, even if she is mostly on the up and up. Well, nobody trusts a lawyer to begin with, Matt. And, you know, what we see that Hogarth is doing, having a, a, a true significant other, um, you know, that, that we believe to be the wife and the fact that she's messing around here, her, her ethics um, at the very least are modeled. Indeed, Pete. And of course she is the, she's the uh, vessel by which we get uh, set onto good old Greg Spheris upstanding gentleman's club owner. Yeah. This is your classic, uh, you know, henchman. And even, even then he's not very good at this. He's, he's frightened of Jones when, uh, she picks the car up over her head. <laughs> Quote unquote. And, yeah. Uh, he buys the laser eyes. Um, you know, it, it is what it needs to be somebody who 99% of us would be frightened of, but she's not in that 99%. Jessica Jones is a true one percenter, at least when it comes to her abilities, Matt. <laughs> that she is. And I mean, we'll save larger analysis for a little bit, but my goodness, Pete, do you, do you get much of a better metaphor for the situation, for the palette of the show than to say, guy who owns a club where women are paid to take their clothes off you know, gets gets roughed up at least emotionally by a woman who's going to keep her clothes on and risks, you know, and, and certainly can pick up a car and can be can be intelligent and powerful, you know, kind of acting as a human being and not acting as uh, as a prop to be looked at. We're fighting for what is right here. Lastly, Matt, you know, maybe 
maybe David Tennant is in this episode if we timed all of his screen time for about 30 seconds, but it's completely effective. This is, you know, with the character actually being in the episode, albeit in flashbacks and, and glimpses, far earlier than we got our bad guy that shall not be named in, in Daredevil, but it carries that same dread, that lurking uh, presence that, you know, he's he's back. The trauma that he's inflicted before. Forget what Jones feels because we know that our protagonist has a history with him. The other people who uh, he's run across that he's also gotten them to do bad things. This is a very bad man. And I am fascinated at the prospects of learning and you all learning what he's done. Pete, given that this is the first hour in a 13 hour story, uh, the function here essentially for hope, at least in the course of this episode is, is rather like that of the, uh, the swimmer at the beginning of jaws, you know, the one that gets the, that gets you know dunked a couple times and then you know then gets eaten she is the quick way for the audience to understand that this is such a bad guy that scene with her in the in the hotel room i mean it's just this kind of fundamental deconstruction of her of her humanity um and her own her own self-will and all that um that that now we know him you know kind of ahead of ahead of the reveal you know a la jaws where i'm sure we're going to see these snippets of him coming um and my goodness pete purple flashes yellow barrels you know it's all it's all serving the same function to to foretell the badness of this guy before he gets here next up cryptology where we uncover hidden messages and larger themes pete where would you like to start one of them, Matt, what's that all about? Pete, I think that that gets to be, depending on who you are in the audience, that gets to be everything and that gets to be nothing. Okay. It's acknowledging that there are that there are other powered people out there, which it should because it's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we don't need to get into where does this correlate to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where the Inhumans are increasingly present and there's rumors out there. And maybe at the strip club there was somebody from the ACTU who – it can be that, okay? It could be one of them as in – Hey, I have no idea about the Agents of Shield and this and that the other, but there was some guy doing like ninja moves on a on a on a builder. I read about that. You know, it's the Daredevil. Are you one of them who's like doing special things? It could be a reference to, hey, it's the Avengers because some of them are in suits and others of them just I don't know, they do wacky and weird things. Um it tips its hat to being part of a larger universe, but but doesn't need to commit to any of them. And I thought that I thought that it fit into the pattern that we saw with Daredevil, where there's not this, you know, Clark Gregg and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. come to town to help Daredevil. You know, they're not doing that. At least they're not doing it now. And that's okay. But it's just saying, hey, there is everything out there. But in here, in this story, there's a woman who who hates herself and hates the things that she's done and is trying to find some peace and maybe is going to find a little tonight by giving a, a summons to a bad guy. By that reasoning, then, can we not read into what Hogarth says about somebody who wants to buy Spherus's club and land? That I don't know. I mean, the fact that there's the fact that there's more to Hogarth than I will do pro bono work for a stripper. Um, I think that that's in line with the character. I mean, my goodness, Pete, that is. That is an insane amount of skyline that she has as she just kind of walks through it. It's not, you know, desks piled up, you know, you know, desks right against the wall to get the view. It's just kind of like, yeah, this is this. This is the hallway. Um, I mean, if there's something to read into it, I guess we'll find out as as episodes and as series unfold. A, a kingpin or a, a Madame Gao or somebody else, maybe, you know, trying to. uh to pull things together, who knows? 
is it too early, Matt? You know, it, we're in our spoiler segment and, uh, you know, so much is made and you just Google the images of Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and she's holding their baby. Is it too early? From to the be- comics, you mean? Yes. Yes. Uh, is it too early to be thinking about that? Well, I think that there's a reason that people in the in the film and TV world will test actors together before committing on a casting. You know, I don't know who was cast first. Almost certainly Kristen Ritter because she's a bigger oh, name. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I guarantee you, before before Mike Coulter was uh, was hired, in addition to them, you know, looking at his headshot and seeing previous work and having meeting with him, I'm sure that they did scenes together. Perhaps even that scene because. You know, there's the elemental it factor that the two of them have together as actors and as characters. And it's just like, wow, that's what it's like to meet somebody for the first time where you just feel like it all clicks together. And sometimes in life, as we know, it it is. And sometimes in life, it isn't. But there's just that moment where you get the breath taken out of you because there's just that spark from the universe and they both just tremendously sell that so the fact that the characters end up closer together and committed and all of this uh i mean again sorry if we're spoiling you for the show flip side is the show doesn't necessarily need to go there i mean pete for those who don't know you are of course spoiler pete you get you get packages in the mail and dvds <laughs> and this and that the other i've only seen blu-rays, the first episode Matt, blu-rays wow and everything's digital these days it's usually <laughs> an email <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i've only seen this first episode so to me it's not spoilery to say in the comics they end up together and there's a child in the center the other i i have a hard time thinking that'll be this season who knows um but but all of that is possible in that first meeting. Flip side, Pete, is all of that is taken away as she silently gets up, hates the view of herself having slept with this guy so quickly, finds out that, oh, he might actually like another girl, and then dresses and leaves, um, and then throws up at, at the thought of her own of of her own nature and her own, you know, from her own self-loathing. They've also taken away that possibility, too, even though, wink, wink, I think we'll see Luke Cage in the show again. How about uh, Hogarth here in terms of her affair? How long until Jessica Jones is investigating that from the significant other's side? Pete, we've made reference in other podcasts to Chekhov's gun, this literary tool where if you're going to introduce something in the beginning, you had better use it in the end. Otherwise, it's a waste. The question then is this. Is the private eye who catches people boning going to catch the fact that Hogarth is stepping out on her wife? Or was that put in place just to let us know more about the character of Hogarth, that she's a calm, cool, collected lawyer who maybe has some, uh, you know, some side interests or con- conflicting interests or or dual interests. I will help this exotic dancer who was who was uh, not taken care of by her employer and help an industrial magnate get uh, or magnate rather get get a hold of this property. You know, all of that could be, and she's in control of her world, but she's also making these poor decisions in terms of you know the the quality of her marriage and this sort of thing so again it's kind of like what that's what's so wonderful about a pilot episode all is possible i agree episode six it is (laughs) lastly what did kilgrave make jessica jones do well pete i think that this speaks to the fundamental uh, uh gender driver behind this series and you know no surprise to anybody with a brain. You have, you know, a woman showrunner writing the script, a female uh, director, great female lead who, you know, when they cast her, as we talked about in, in some of the preview episodes, when they cast her, you know, she just had kind of that, that um, not quite self-loathing, but certainly she didn't walk in as the princess. She walked in as, here I am in my boots and my leather jacket. What's the part again? I'm ready to read for you. Um there's this gender driver to this and, and the notion that 
you know, that that Kilgrave has made her do things she didn't want to do. Now, I've seen a little bit of the of the preview stuff. I'm not completely without without some some knowledge ahead, but my read at this point, removing the uh, the, the 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 previews from it, it's supposed to come across as sexual in nature. Now, does it need to be that? Could it be other things? I, I think it might be. But insofar as I think as, it has to be in that, you know, we know Jones to be powered and Kilgrave exerts this mind control over whoever he seems to come into contact. So how was she made to use her gifts? I think the sexual stuff, particularly coming from this, you know, showrunner, actress strong overwhelming female cast i think that's the low-hanging fruit i think that maybe that's even meant to be the misdirect i don't disagree and i think at the very least if our takeaway from the show as an audience is amidst the superpowers and the razzle dazzle of uh, of, of a story we're able to come back into the real real world having made some comments about uh, choices that women make, choices that women are not allowed to make, uh, things forced upon women, whether it's just, you know, kind of gender norms all the way up to, you know, issues of sexual assault and and kind of, you know, the dorm life uh, issue and whatnot that's out there. I think that's meant to be our real world takeaway as we proceed through this episode, whether the acts themselves are are intimate in nature, well, physically intimate in nature, or whether it's something else i think that that's supposed you know kind of the real world connection to this is about about somebody who has been victimized and somebody who's going to find her way back and and overthrow the 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 perpetrator um i think that's supposed to be our keystone back here in the real world as we watch these kind of fictional and fantastic events unfold <laughs> Let's check our mail drop and hear what you have to say. Pete, before we dive on in, want to let people know about uh, a little a little carrot on the end of the stick. We, uh, in episodes, in podcast episodes 104, 105, and 106, uh, we are going to be giving away something that I hold in my hand right here from New York Comic Con. Three uh, uh, Marvel, Netflix, Jessica Jones uh, promotional comic books, custom edition number one that we got at the fantastic Jessica Jones panel. We're going to give those away in episode one per episode four, five, and six for the podcast for that. Um, and we're going to give them away to people who uh, leave us reviews on iTunes. Uh, so we know that, uh, you know, sometimes with iTunes, there'll be a little, uh, you know, turnover time as they approve it to make sure you're not saying, you know, naughty things. Um, but uh, certainly give us a review on iTunes, either on the Jessica Jones uh, podcast by Fantastic Geek feed or the Pop Culture podcast by Fantastic Geek feed. Either one will work. Do just uh, send a quick little uh, little email or tweet um, or DM, whatever it might be. Message us through Facebook just to say, hey, I left a review and my name on iTunes is, you know, blank. Just so that way we know. If uh, your name does get picked out of the hat, we know how to be in touch with you to mail that uh, that little Jessica Jones comic out. So, Pete, enough talking about the iTunes and reviews and the comic book giveaway that we've been holding on to since New York Comic Con. <laughs> Let's hear from Mary Kirk. That's at Geek Kirk on Twitter. Uh, here's what she had to say uh, regarding this first episode. Great hallway shot in the pilot. Really well filmed. Uh, got the total creeps the end of the pilot was effing brilliant uh she says um she says so the hallway scene with the neighbor we've seen it countless times with guys in the jj and neighbor roles that's talking about malcolm as well uh, uh two women in the roles works just as well shocking yet true uh even if it is tropey so tons of love there from Mary, who concludes, I love that Jessica Jones just gives us a hero with powers. It picks right up in the middle of the story. So words of praise there from Mary. Definitely. There was another tweet while uh, short on words, big on feeling here. A lot of people uh, stayed up till three o'clock in the morning Eastern time to take in the first couple episodes 
and Lara J. Goings at Goings Lara uh, replied merely to uh, my tweet, you know, who's already watched Big Smiley Face. <laughs> that certainly is a pro. We would have liked to do that, unfortunately. Real world stuff for us both prevented, but uh, what a trooper. What a trooper. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us as far as either those reviews or any other ways, we're going to tell you now how that can be done. Indeed, Pete. Let's start with the tweet with Pete. How can people hear from you on the Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 6,695 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a ton of ways. Want to mention up front one new way, if uh, you are an old, long-time listener. Uh, we'd love to hear from you through the listener line. It's a Google Voice number, 732-707-1815. Say who you are, say which episode you're talking about. That way we can you know, save it uh, if, we're, if we're not quite there yet in the podcast. But share your thoughts about an episode that way. Great way to have your voice heard on the podcast. Uh, you can also get in touch with us, Fantastic Geek, in a variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek with the PH. You can find us under that name on the dot com, the Twitter, the Gmail, and Pete Moore. Facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek, all one word with the PH. You'll like us today and you'll never regret it. Well, that Pete, I cannot wait to get going for episode two. Uh, after this episode has dropped on today, Friday the 20th, the premiere date, uh, we're going to be settling into releases on Sundays and Thursdays. So episode 102 on Sunday, 103 on Thursday, 104 on the following Sunday, etc., etc. Don't forget that comic book giveaway for iTunes reviews for episodes uh, four, five, and six. So Pete, we'll be back in, you know, 48 hours 36 hours for episode two cannot wait to watch but with that pete it is time to say goodbye to all our listeners and i will give you the final word main street birch street higgins drive cobalt lane